You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Ray Garten is the author of Darklings, Seductions, Live Girls, Biofire. His newest novel is Bestial. Thank you for joining me, Ray. Thank you for having me. Ray, this is a really interesting novel, and this, this isn't the first time that you've talked about the Seventh-day Adventists in your fiction, is it? It's not the first time, but it's the most extensive. I've never delved this deeply into Adventism before. I've um, I've used Adventism in a couple of short stories and a novella, but never in a novel like this before. Um, let's talk a little bit about your upbringing, because and obviously it's, it's quite pertinent to this particular novel, and I think it informs all of your fiction. So tell us what it was like for you growing up. Where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in uh, Northern California in the Redding area, and uh, I was raised in a Seventh-day Adventist family. I went to Seventh-day Adventist schools from grade one into my freshman year in college. It's a very, it's a very enclosed world. If you're raised an Adventist, that's all you know. They are um, in the world, but not of the world. And you're very separate from everything and everyone else when you're raised in that community. It's a very close-knit community, very small. And so when I got old enough to get out, it was, it, it was a real shock. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, here you are. You're a noted horror writer. Uh, yet, were you even allowed to read anything that was fictional growing up? I saw my first horror movie at about the age of five. And, really? Yeah. What I, was it? It was William Castle's Thirteen Ghosts. Ah, okay. And I was next door at my cousin's house, and. Um, up to that point, I was a very frightened kid. I was terrified all the time. I could not sleep without a light on. I could not lose sight of my parents or I would panic. And the reason for this is that in Adventism, you were taught that the end of the world is going to happen. It's going to begin at any moment. And the end of the world will include something called the Sunday Law, which means that the Catholics and all the other Sunday-keeping religions, as the Adventists refer to them, because Adventists worship on Saturday, will, um, will gang up on everyone else, and if they'll pass a Sunday law which requires you to worship on Sunday, and if you don't, you'll be hunted down, imprisoned, tortured, and killed for your beliefs. And I was reminded of this daily from as, as far back as I can remember, and I lived in, in fear of this, in terror. And when I saw my first horror movie, <laughs> it was frightening, but it was fun. And I, it, it never occurred to me that being afraid could be fun. And I was hooked after that. And I sought out horror everywhere I could find it, comic books, TV shows, movies on, on TV, because I wasn't allowed to go to theaters. And my parents didn't like it. They did not approve. But I think they saw how happy it made me. It was almost a calming influence on me. Compared to what I was afraid of in, in my life, this wasn't so bad. So they let me watch this stuff, but they never missed out on an opportunity to remind me that this meant Satan was working through me and that there was something wrong with me. <laughs> and I, so I grew up believing that. Um, and it's proved to be true. It's proved to be true, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, and I started writing very early. I like telling stories. And the stories that I told were just naturally dark. Um, it's not that I set out to write horror stories. It's just that when I wrote, that's what came out of me. Now, uh, does the Seventh-day Adventist religion permit the, the reading and writing of fiction? Is that no. Fiction, uh, the, the uh, Seventh-day Adventist prophet, Ellen G. White, Victorian-era uh, woman who um, wrote a lot of books, which later was learned she'd mostly stolen, plagiarized. Uh, she taught that uh, fiction was wrong. It was a sin. And if you read a lot of fiction, it would affect you physically. It would damage your brain. It would cause physical paralysis. Uh, it, would, it would damage your organs. And to this day, Adventists stay away from fiction. Uh, they don't understand it. They, they believe that if you write fiction, you are lying professionally. You're telling lies. You're making a living telling lies. They don't understand the purpose of fiction, how you can derive great truths from fiction. That's just uh, confusing to them. It, it makes no sense to them. Uh, and so when, when you write fiction, you're essentially uh, causing others to sin by providing them with fiction to read. And so when I became a writer, it did not go over well <laughs> among the community. Well, well, tell us about your first experience selling fiction. Uh, Carlos Ruiz Safon likens it to a Faustian bargain. <laughs> um, I was 20 when, uh, when uh, Seductions was sold. And um, Give us a, a precis of what that novel is about. It's, uh, it's about these creatures that, that, that hibernate in the earth uh, and come out every few hundred years and pose as human beings. Um, and they seduce their victims and, and eat them. And when they transform into their natural form, their vertical fanged mouths are positioned between the legs of their human form, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. um, the purpose of writing the book was I, I set out to, to do something in which I could use vagina dentata. <laughs> okay. And um, it, was, it was odd because I, being raised in Adventist, I had very little experience. I was a very naive, small-town boy, and, and here I am writing this filthy book. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're 20 years old. You've published your first novel. It's over the top pretty much by anybody's <laughs> definition. What are your, the people in your community, were you still living at home at that time? I was living in Angwin, California when the book came out, mm -hmm. and uh, people stopped talking to me. Uh, rumors were spread about me, really nasty rumors that I was a devil worshiper, that I was performing satanic rituals in my apartment, and of course none of these were true, um, but everybody believed them. And some of the people who believed them were people who'd known me all my life. That's what happens in Adventism when you step out of line, when you don't follow the rules, Rumor, um, just outright lies are spread about you. Uh, the acceptance and affection of the community is cut off. You are ostracized. And um, I got out of there. It, it got pretty ugly. And, and I got out of there and moved to Southern California. And uh, it was, uh, I was a mess for a while because that was my world. That was my entire planet. And suddenly I was no longer on it. I was, I was in a foreign land, which is otherwise known as the real world. And it took a while for me to get my bearings, years in fact. I was, I was sort of adrift for quite a while. 
I spend all my time writing. <laughs> and, and that's when you started a career as a, as a noted horror novelist, and one of your first uh, big hit novels that was is still considered a, a classic is Live Girls. That was my fourth book. Um, I had done, let's see, Seductions, Darklings, and I did a novelization, and then I did uh, Live Girls, and that was a result of a trip, my first trip to New York City, and the result of visiting Times Square. Um, and I, when that book came out, uh, it, it was at the time that AIDS was beginning to surface, and that people were they didn't understand it. There was a lot of uh, misinformation about it, and. Uh, a lot of people immediately said that I was using vampires as a metaphor for AIDS. And that was a big surprise to me. I had no idea that's what I was doing. But I figured, oh, if, that's what they, if that's what they say, I'll go along with it. <laughs> now, um, one of the things that I like about horror, and your horror in particular, is that your characters are um, solidly pretty much middle class. We don't have a lot of, like, superstars, athletes, superheroes. And I think this is one of the appeals of horror is that uh, it appeals to the masses because it actually manages to be authentically about them. That's what's always appealed to horror for me. That's, uh, uh, that's what I've always found, found appealing about horror. That's what made, made me really sit up and take notice of Stephen King because these were people I knew. They lived on the other side of the country in in Maine, but but they were they were very familiar, and I think horror has always been a sort of um, blue collar, uh, down to earth genre that appeals to uh, the average reader, and um, it it appeals to people who have the problems that we all are familiar with, uh, you know, paying the rent or or the mortgage or uh, you know, uh, paying the doctor bills for your kids. And horror provides a th uh, something else to worry about for a while, you know? It, it gives you something else to, to be frightened about for a short time, and you can forget all those bills and the problems at home and uh, come through it safely. One of the things that you do very well is in your uh, horror work, because you mix horror and the erotic, and you've done that from, from the get-go. Um, why do you do that? Is that the, some, the result, uh, you think, of your upbringing? Um, the reason is that I've always found uh, horror to be, to work best when it, 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 it targets us at our most vulnerable. And there is no, no more vulnerable thing than, I mean, we're most vulnerable in sex, in our sexuality, whether it's during sex or whether it's our genitals, you know, that's, that hits us where we live. And I've always believed in, in, uh, in Alfred Hitchcock's edict, make your audience as miserable as possible and they will love you for it. And that's what I try to do. And, and sex works that way because it's one thing that we all have in common. We may not have politics in common, skin color in common, but sex is, is, a, is the great leveler. And so I, I, I find myself using that a lot. And I also like to write it. I just enjoy writing erotic scenes. It's, it's fun. <laughs> and of course, sex sells. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, when you're creating a, a novel like Live Girls, like Ravenous, like uh, Bestial, 
I, you have, could you talk about your process of writing? Do you like outline, do you know where you're gonna go or do you just sit down and start with a character on page one and end up with a trail of bloody bodies <laughs> and, and disappointed lovers 300 pages later? <laughs> I have tried to outline so many times. I, I've always thought there was something wrong with me because I know so many other writers who are so organized. They sit down, they outline the book. Everything is worked out. When they sit down to write, all they have to do is type. And I can't do it. I just cannot do it. It's too organized. I've never been a very organized person. I, uh, I do a lot of thinking about a book before I sit down to write it. I'll make some notes, maybe some character sketches. But I don't really know how to write the story until I'm actually writing. I can't work out a story in an outline. It has, I have to be sitting at the keyboard actually writing the book. And then it unfolds for me. And it, it, the thing I like about that is that I'm in pretty much as much suspense as the reader because I, I honestly don't know what's going to happen. Very rarely do I have things all worked out. The characters often run away with the book. They surprise me. They take over. They do their own thing. And I'm just sort of dictating. Um, and that's the way I've always done it. There was a period when I tried hard to outline and, and be what I thought was normal and couldn't do it. So I've gone back to my messy uh, uh, way of, of making it up as I go along and writing myself into a corner and having to go back and rearrange things. And I enjoy it. That's, that's the way I've always done it. And it's the only way I know how to do it. <laughs> One of the things about the horror genre that I really like is that it's very flexible. You can pretty much put anything into a, a novel that's in the horror genre, whether it's psychological suspense, a psycho killer, you can put supernatural, and you can put science fiction elements too. And you've used all of these to, to great effect. Could you talk about um, maybe some examples when you've chosen one or the other or the other and how you go about choosing in your mixing and matching? Biofire was probably the closest I've come to, to actual science fiction. Um, and it was kind, it wasn't something I, I set out to do. I, I don't think I ever make a conscious decision to mix this with that and see how it works. Um, I get an idea and I use whatever works. And then what I end up with, if it mixes science fiction and horror, then great, uh, just as long as it works. That's all I care about. Um, I use a lot of traditional uh, uh, horror creatures like vampires, werewolves. I grew up watching the old Universal classics, The Wolfman, Frankenstein, Dracula, and I have, that's, that was what horror was to me. That, that was what the genre was. And I have always had a love affair with those, those, those creatures. And I have fun trying to update them. The, that, to me, is great fun bringing them out of the black and white movies or out of the Victorian novels or, or the, the old legends and, and plopping them in, in modern day situations. Um, these days, with both Ravenous and Bestial, I've gotten a lot of responses from readers who, the, the genre has changed so much. The, the creatures are being used in, in genres that aren't necessarily horror. <laughs> Uh, romance. Yes, <laughs> romance. Fabio with fangs. Yes. And I, I get a lot of, you know, I picked it up because it was a werewolf story, and I love werewolf stories, but I couldn't get through it because it was just too scary and bloody. That's not the kind of romance, uh, werewolf story I like. So um, 
the, the genre has, the, the creatures have changed. The genres have blended into paranormal romance and urban fantasy and whatever they're calling it today. I, I don't know what they'll be calling it tomorrow or next week. But um, I enjoy using the traditional tropes of horror in, in modern day settings to see if, if, uh, if they still work. <laughs> Well, well, you are in that kind of a unique position of, in a sense, updating your own mythos. I mean, things have changed. A lot has changed since 1987 when Live Girls came out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Times Square isn't even there anymore. <laughs> right. Um, I had to move the, 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 the vampires to Los Angeles in nightlife and put them in the movie business. Uh, that was intentional. <laughs> um, You've had some dealings <laughs> with, uh, with Hollywood. <laughs> Um, and I've, I've, I used a couple of characters from Nightlife in, uh, in Bestial, and I plan to do that some more in the future. But yeah, things have changed a lot. Live Girls uh, was a lot more shocking in 1987 than it is now. It's, uh, a lot of people read it now after hearing about it, and they say, nah, that's no big deal. And, you know, compared to what's out there now and, and what we've grown used to, 22 years later, it, it's not, but uh, it was at the time, and, and boy, time is not kind to any of us, or our novels, uh, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> when I, I have to admit that um, when talking about your latest novel, Bestial, there are many novels when I talk about them, I think I don't want to talk about the ending because you know, I don't want to give it away, and, and I don't really don't like to or need to talk about the plot much. Yours is the first novel where I, I thought, God, I don't even want to talk about the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I had. When I, when I first started that book, that prologue, or you're talking about the prologue in yes. the house? Yeah. Uh, that was all I had, and um, I didn't know where I was going to go from there, but that came out of me like that in, in a snap. That just poured out of me in, in a very short time. And I built the book on, on that. Uh, I, I'm rather fond of that prologue. <laughs> I think it's one of the most outstanding pieces of horror or fiction writing I've seen in quite some time. And you're going to be able to have a hard time topping yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I've given that book to a couple of expectant mothers. Um. <laughs> <laughs> because you wanted them to have nightmares for the rest of their life? <laughs> It was it, uh, it. It brought to mind as I was writing it the old movie uh, "It's Alive," which I love that movie. Uh, so do I. That was a great movie. I haven't seen it in ages. Nobody shows it on TV anymore, and I need to get the DVD because there's an opening scene in in the in the uh, operating room in, in the uh, delivery room that, uh, if I remember correctly, was was pretty pretty jaw dropping back then. Yeah, uh, I think so. Now. It, one of the things I like about uh, Ravenous and Bestial is the way you're kind of bringing together a number of characters from, from your different books. So uh, tell us about your, uh, your paranormal investigators. Well, um, uh, Karen Moffat and Gavin Keoff are two uh, investigators who meet in nightlife. They've never met, met or worked together before. They're, they're hired by Martin Burgess, who is a wildly successful sort of uh, eccentric um, horror novelist who is big enough to make regular appearances on Letterman and that sort of thing, and he's very rich, and he hires them to investigate um, 
he wants to know if the stuff he writes about is, is really out there, if, if any of it really takes place. So he hires them to investigate these things. In Nightlife, he sets them on the path to investigate vampires in Los Angeles. And then they show up again in Bestial, and he's heard some things that lead him to believe uh, that there might be werewolves in Big Rock, California. So he sends them there. And the way he learns this, what, the, the thing that I hope to explore more in the next book, is he has this network of conspiracy theory nerds who, um, the, the aluminum foil beanie crowd, <laughs> who keep their fingers on the pulse of conspiracies and the paranormal UFOs and, and what the government's hiding. And he sends uh, uh, Karen and Gavin to Big Rock. And in the next book, I'm going to bring Davey Owen from Live Girls uh, into the mix as well, uh, from Live Girls and Nightlife. He's going to be back. And um, I hope to use them more. I, I, I enjoy them. They're kind of sardonic. They have, uh, after their first experience with vampires, which is really traumatic for both of them, they've sort of developed a pretty thick skin. And um, People, I, characters in your books need thick skin. They need they, thick they, skins. And flat jackets. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy, um, like I said, like, like Hitchcock said, make your audience suffer. I enjoy making making readers really like someone and then <laughs> doing something terrible with that person. <laughs> it, it's fun. Now, talk about creating sympathy for your victims and for your perpetrators too, because we kind of we we find them fascinating, even though they're really horrible people. How do you go about it as a writer, creating a character that we love and that you're just going to torture in a way that's almost unimaginable. This is actually literally unimaginable to the reader until they yeah, read it. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not sure. I, I, uh, I try to use as many... Um, I, I try to imbue the, the characters with as many attributes that I gather from people around me, people I know, people I've met, as possible. Uh, their problems, I think it helps if their problems are recognizable, familiar. You know, if the reader can say, oh yeah, I know what that's like. Um, in Ravenous, there's a woman who is uh, trying to lose weight. She, she feels that her husband is no longer attracted to her because she's overweight. And you can't get more, I, I, that's, pretty, that's pretty common, I think. And, and, um, and horrible things happen to them. Um, Making the villains interesting isn't a problem, but keeping them human uh, can sometimes can sometimes be difficult because the temptation is to just you know go crazy, make them killing machines or 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 diabolical comic book villains, and I have to pull in the reins there sometimes and and try and try to try to give them something that makes them that keeps their feet on the ground, makes them human. You know, it strikes to me that. It strikes me that, you know, uh, your books involve so much blood and so much of the human anatomy, uh, <laughs> usually dissected and sprayed <laughs> across the walls. Uh, you must spend a fair amount of time researching this oh, stuff. Oh, God, no, no. I, I, get, I get lightheaded at the sight of blood. Um, I cannot, uh, if I have to have a blood drawn from my arm, I have to look away. I can't watch the needle pierce my, my skin. I can't, I am a wuss. 
And I, I do research when I have to. I have a, a doctor friend. I have some medical personnel people that I will call and ask questions because I don't want to go anywhere where I'm going to have to look at pictures of anything. <laughs> really? <laughs> no, no. Um, I'm, uh, I really am a wuss when it comes to that sort of thing. And I think that might have something... If it works on the page, I think it might work on the page because I'm upsetting myself when I write those things. Uh, I don't always enjoy that. I, I get nervous when violence uh, or bloodshed become purely for pleasure, for fun. If, 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 I get the, if I'm reading something and I get the feeling that I'm supposed to be enjoying it rather than shrinking away from it and wincing, that makes me uncomfortable. Uh, I always try to make it as painful as possible. I want the reader to squirm. I want the reader to bend over and, and hug himself or herself. Uh, there are some books like the, the novel Scissors, which comes out in February from, from Leisure. Uh, I, I wish I could watch people read that book, because there are, especially men, because there are <laughs> scenes in that book that are going to have men grabbing their crotches and bending over. <laughs> <laughs> That tickles me. I, I enjoy the thought of that. But writing it, actually writing it, imagining the, the blood, the, the pain, that, I, I, don't, I don't get off on that. That's, it's not fun. It, it, it's necessary, I think, in the horror genre. And I think um, when used in the right place, works really well. If there's too much of it, if it's there all the time, it, it's, uh, it's numbing. Well, it's certainly not. I mean, in your novels, uh, in, in Bestial, it's you. It's very nicely paced in terms of what happens once you and recover, pick yourself off the floor <laughs> off the initial shock. <laughs> um, one other thing. Let's talk a little bit more about the Seventh Day Adventist okay. religion and, and the way that it plays into your latest novel and, and the way it's played into your life. I. I it strikes me that. Writers who have been exposed to religion in a, in a significant manner in their lives really are a lot better equipped to write horror than anybody else. When people ask me, why do you write horror, I smile and say, because I was raised a Seventh-day Adventist. Um, what, what, what they teach their children is horror. They don't want them reading horror novels. They don't want them re watching horror movies. But what they teach their children is pure, undiluted horror. And the only difference is, you know that the werewolves and the vampires aren't real, but you're taught that this is really going to happen. And it could happen at any second. Um, <clears throat> when I was a kid, I'm 46 now, so when I was a kid, there were no 24-hour news stations. Uh, TV shows would be interrupted by a news bulletin and um, somebody would come in and, and give whatever story just popped up. And that used to terrify me because I, I used to think that they were going, the, the announcer was going to come on and, and say that the Sunday law had been passed. And whenever there was a news bulletin that, bulletin that interrupted a TV show, my, I would stop breathing. I would have a panic attack. And I think it's hard for people who've never been exposed to that kind of uh, religious cult mentality um, to understand that that fear, that when they hear what the, the, the religion believes, they laugh. But when you're inside looking out, it's very different. It's, it's very real. It's only been in the last five years that I have been able to, uh, and, and especially more recently, the last two or three years, 
that I've been able to sleep without a light on, that I have been able to go to sleep without a radio or something playing because the silence would bother me. If, if I were to lie down in utter silence and, and try to go to sleep, I would start thinking about the end of the world. It's only been recently as a middle-aged adult that I have come out from under the sheer terror of what's to come. Uh, of, of that, that even, even when I stop believing all the other things that the religion teaches, um, that stayed with me for ever. I mean, it was, it was like a, a big scar on my psyche. And it took uh, years before I ever got over it. Now, um, I've come around to the fact that, you know, and I've had to explain this to myself, we're getting farther and farther away from being a religious society. And the idea of a national Sunday law is simply ludicrous. And it's getting more ludicrous as time passes. Uh, and, and also, you know, I, this was never addressed to me. I always believed that, that, uh, that when the Sunday law passed, they'd go after the, uh, the Seventh-day Adventists. What about the Jews? I mean, there are other people who don't worship on Sunday. And the Adventists are just this tiny little clot of of terrified people, um, it just doesn't make any sense. But it took a long time of deprogramming myself with my wife's help, with the help of a couple of friends, to get out from under the weight of that fear. And, and, and I really, I'm not joking when I say I write horror because I was raised a Seventh-day Adventist, because in the Seventh-day Adventist cult, you're taught to fear. That's, that's what they do. They teach you what to be afraid of. and. That's how you spend your time, being, being afraid of it. And um, I learned how to tell scary stories from that cult. <laughs> and, and learned your lesson well. Bestial is set in a small uh, town on the California coast. Yes. Uh, one of many imaginary small towns. Mm -hmm. I think you could do a, a nice road trip up and down <laughs> the South California coast of all the, the bay cities and yes. big rocks that have been created. Um, that's uh, pretty much dominated by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Um, could you talk about creating that community and how much it resembled the community that you grew up in? Uh, the, the community that I grew up in was not uh, Adventist-dominated. It it's a very... Um, it's a religious community, but it's made up of a, a number of different denominations, and, and the Adventists were just one of them. Uh, the community that I spent time in um, later in life when I went to college was Angwin, California, and that is all Adventist. They have their own supermarket there, and when you go in, you can't find meat. You can't find anything that has caffeine in it. You can't find seafood, no, no flesh at all. Um, no cigarettes, no, uh, nothing uh, that, if they don't believe in it, they don't sell it. <laughs> It literally doesn't exist. No. Uh -uh. Um, and that's the way the community, it, it, they have their own uh, doctors, their own businesses, their own, they have their own food. I mean, the, the Loma Linda uh, Company for, for Ages made these just unbelievably disgusting synthetic foods that were supposed to be meat substitutes. They're made out of soy and nuts and um, things like natina. And um, my, the one that I remember from my childhood were these fake scallops that came in a can. And they were these shapeless globs of spongy material. And I mean spongy. You, when you bit into it, it 
it was like biting into a small sponge. And you'd tear it off, and it would have the most awful flavor. And if you don't know what a scallop tastes like, you don't know the difference. I was in my 20s before I ever ate crab, lobster, scallops. I had never tasted those foods. And um, boy, did that open up a new world to me. <laughs> I had my first lobster in Boston, which was great. Um, the communities that they have are very uh, rigidly Adventist in that they don't, uh, they don't sell anything that they don't believe in. They don't cater to anyth anything they don't believe in. You won't find a movie theater in a, in a Seventh-day Adventist community or a bowling alley or a bar. Um, no bowling alleys? No bowling alleys. They don't no. believe in bowling? No. Well, they didn't when I was a kid. That was one of the no-nos. I think they might have loosened up on bowling. You know, They may have given some concessions to their flock. Um, but I, I, uh, I, I wasn't allowed to go to theaters, movie theaters, as a kid, and I wanted to so bad. Part of it was that it was forbidden fruit, but uh, early on I fell in love with movies, and I, I used to clip out the, the movie ads from the newspaper and pin them to a bulletin board in my bedroom be, because I just longed to go to these movies. And in 1977, I finally went into it. I finally mustered the courage to go into a movie theater. Didn't tell my parents. I went to see Neil Simon's The Goodbye Girl. Um, and I remember, it was, the theater was in a mall. It was one of those three-screen multiplexes in, a, in an indoor mall. And my non-Adventist friend and I were standing in line, and he knew that the reason, he, he was attending the Adventist school that I, I was attending at the time, but he wasn't Adventist, and he sort of laughed at the whole thing. He knew that the reason we didn't go to movie theaters was because if we stepped into the theater, our guardian angel would not go in with us. And if we were to somehow die in the theater in a popcorn-related accident or something, I don't know, our souls would be lost. So we're standing in line, and we're about to buy our tickets, and he looks over to a bench in the mall and says, oh, look, it's our guardian angels. They're sitting down for a smoke. <laughs> and it was funny, but my heart stopped beating. And I was terrified for just a moment, and I almost turned and ran from the, from the theater. I was so scared of going in there. I had been taught that it was a den of sin and iniquity. When I went in, I expected there to be beer and vodka on sale at the snack bar. I expected people to be having sex and shooting up heroin in the, in the, in the auditorium. I literally expected this. And I was amazed at how wholesome it was. It was just this very family-oriented uh, place and totally safe. The smell of popcorn was great. I, I, I walked around in the movie theater with my mouth hanging open. I couldn't believe it. And while I was in the theater, my, my parents, my mother called my friend's house where I was supposed to be having dinner. And his sister answered the phone and she didn't know that this was supposed to be a secret. And she said, oh, well, Ray and Bob went to the show. So when I got home, my mother knew that I had been in a movie theater. And the first thing she said when I walked in the door was, you're lucky Christ didn't come while you were in that theater. <laughs> and it didn't work. I had been in the theater. I knew what was in there. They had been lying to me. And I wasn't going to swallow that particular hook anymore. And after that, I, I went to movies. I was a crazy person. I went to movies every day. I went all the time. And I've been a movie lover ever since. One of the things in this, uh, in your new novel, Bestial, you have a character who lives at home with his mother and his grandmother. 
He's, you know, middle, he's middle-aged. He's essentially never dated. Um, and, and he's lives a, a very, very small life. And when I read this, I'm wondering, you know, is this like, is this possible that somebody could live like this now? Bob Barron's is actually based on a real person that I've known all my life. He is my age. He lives with his mother and grandmother. He is, um, he's never had a relationship with, a, a, no real, romantic relationship at all. He's, he claims he had sex once in his youth, and I'm not sure I believe him. He has been emotionally uh, crippled by the, 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 the combination of the religion, the, the Seventh-day Adventist cult, and his mother, uh, who is domineering. And that's not uncommon in, in Adventist families for some reason. The, the, maybe it's because the, the, the cult was founded by a woman, and uh, it has a sort of matriarchal feel to it, because in a lot of Adventist families that I knew growing up, the mother was, was quite dominant. Um, he is, I, I've known him all my life and I have tried to uh, talk sense into him. But I've, I can't pull him out of this. He just sinks deeper and deeper and deeper into this as he gets older. He becomes more hopeless, more, he gives up more every day. And it's not that he's, there's anything wrong with him. I mean, he was a very smart guy. He could have done anything he wanted, but he is crippled by fear. He's afraid of, if he goes out of the house, he's afraid of uh, how people perceive him. He's afraid of what God's gonna do to him. He's afraid of, he's, he loses sleep over the fact that God is going to punish him for masturbating because he has no other sexual outlet. Um, and this is not that uncommon in the cult. There are a lot of people who live their entire lives this way. They are imprisoned by fear and uh, uncertainty and self-loathing. There's a lot of self-loathing. I know there was in my case. If, you, you know, if, you, if you're constantly told that you're a worthless worm in the sight of God and you're, um, uh, if you have any interests that don't fall in line with that of the cult, you're told that, that there's something wrong with you, that, 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 that Satan is working in you. And Bob Barron's in the book is not, an not much of an exaggeration to uh, the, the real guy. It's, it's, it's a very um, accurate portrayal of, of a lot of families in the cult. And I wanted to capture that in the book because the older I get, the, the angrier I get as I watch this happening to him, as I watch him just sort of diminish. He's, it's like he's disappearing. Uh, I, I'm, I've often wondered what he's going to do when his mother and grandmother die. His, his grandmother is like 96, 97 years old. I don't know what's going to happen to him when, when he ha doesn't have them anymore. Uh, and I've tried talking to him about that, and he won't talk about it. He, he pretends it's not going to happen. It, it's really fascinating. Um, we, we get to hear some, some sermons, and they really confirm your, your vision of, of this as a religion of fear. And, and I love the perception of angels and the way that you work that into your plot. Could you talk about the, I mean, this is, it, it's so perfectly, it's, it, it's like the, the Seventh-day Adventists were invented to help spread uh, the disease of werewolves. 
I like that idea. Um, well, the, when, um, when Taggart, the, uh, the sheriff and the alpha male, decides to use the Adventist church, he does so because, for one, he's familiar with the religion, but he says they already believe in someone other than God. They already have Ellen White. And if you can believe that an uneducated, mostly uneducated woman, Victorian-era woman, um, who is an alcoholic, obsessed with masturbation, uh, who at times in her religious fervor would drop to the floor and roll around and, and kick and scream, could write this mountain of books that, she, that had been attributed to her uh, and that she was receiving visions directly from God. If you can believe all that, you'll believe anything. <laughs> and that's actually been proven because the, the Adventist people seem to be vulnerable to other cults. They go off into the, Bran the Branch Davidians is, a, is a, an offshoot of, of Seventh-day Adventism. The um, Strong City cult with Michael Trevesser, uh, uh, these are really sick, twisted cults that, that branch off of the Adventist church because apparently it's just not loopy enough for them. Um, but uh, the, the idea that, that he could use them to, to lure other people into their uh, pack, uh, I like that a lot because it's, it's um, if, if those people could be, could be convinced that Ellen White was a prophet, then he could convince them of anything and he could use them to, to do whatever he wanted, to, to, to uh, gain more control in the area, which is what he, he plans to do. I, I particularly um, like this idea, you know, um, in science fiction there's a phrase, uh, BEM. In science fiction it means bug-eyed monsters. I, I think in Ray Garden world it means baby-eating monsters. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you've essentially, uh, the readers might well walk away from this book thinking, you know, these Seventh-day Adventists are about half, you know, a, a, an ounce away from being baby-eyed, baby-eating monsters. They're not going to be very pleased with this picture of their church. Now, you've suffered some retributions from them in the past. I mean, yeah. they've come after you not just to, not just with words. Yeah. Um, and they've they've uh, they have reacted slightly to to bestial, and I knew they wouldn't like it, but. Um, I'm not, do, and a lot of people have already accused me of having a, uh, a bone to pick with them, a beef with them, and that I'm bashing Adventists. And I, that's not my intention. I really did not do this just to bash Adventists. I wanted to mix werewolves and religion, which I don't think has been done before. It happens a lot with vampires, which is a, kind of a natural. It goes back to the cross and the, uh, all the religious imagery in Dracula. Um, but it's never been done with werewolves, and I wanted to try that. And the only religion I know really well is, is the Seventh-day Adventist cult, and I used that. And I decided if I'm going to use it, I'm going to be accurate about it. And so I slipped in a lot of information about Ellen White and about the cult that they don't like. <laughs> but, you know, the world is full of things that we don't like. <laughs> and... Um, uh, if 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 they don't like it, then 
they, they're very big on religious liberty because they're convinced that, that there are people in Washington plotting to end their religious liberty by passing this Sunday law. They really think there are conspiracies going on right now. And um, when you step back and look at their, their, uh, their claims about being uh, pro-religious liberty, you begin to see that they're pro their religious liberty. Their religious liberty is very important to them, but they really don't care about anybody else's. When you read their literature and see the things they say about the Catholic Church, that it's that the that the it's the beast of Revelation, that the Pope is the Antichrist. Um, they say the most hateful, awful things about the Seventh Day Adventist Church. But if anybody criticize, I mean, about the Catholic Church. But if anybody criticizes Seventh Day Adventism, they they get angry. They, you refer to it being a cult, which, by the way, it is. It fits that. It fits any reasonable definition of the word cult. Um, they get angry. They get nasty, and they have a bad case of being able to dish it out but not take it. Um, I've had my problems with them in the past, and I uh, hope I don't in the future. But I'm I'm not going to be surprised if I do. Uh, and I have never written about them, like I said, as extensively as I have in Bestial. And part of the reason is out of fear. Uh, for one thing, they've gotten very litigious in recent years. They've taken a book, a, a page out of the Scientology playbook, and now if you say anything that, that they don't like, they'll sue you. And they don't sue you with Adventist lawyers, they do, because they don't, the, uh, Ellen White frowned on lawsuits. So they, they use lawyers outside the cult. Uh, they've shut down websites. Uh, there are a lot of former Adventists out there who put together websites trying to tell people about the truth about the cult and its, its history and the things that the cult itself tries to cover up. And they have shut down these websites. They've harassed these people with attorneys, sicking attorneys on them to you know, drain them of money with legal fees. Um, I'm, not, uh, I'm not out to piss them off, but at the same time, um, I don't want. I don't want to condone anything they do by my silence. I don't. I don't want to. I. I, I want to take the opportunity to warn people about them, because they do a very good job of painting themselves as a mainstream, harmless religion, which they are not. One of the things about uh, Bestial that that I that think is really interesting. It's a cracking page turner. It's scary as heck. We love the characters except for those who are despicable and probably want to eat us <laughs> but through all of this i thought this is one of the funniest books i've read in quite some time <laughs> and could you talk about the sense of humor you you bring to this because i think that's kind of diffuses the you know the it makes the the information about the religion come across a lot cleaner mm -hmm. uh, it seems a lot it doesn't seem this doesn't seem like a hit job it just seems like, you know, lifting up the rock. Yeah. Um, I think the older I get, the more I seek out the humor in everything, just to stay sane. Um, and I think that humor and horror are a great match. They're, they work well together. If horror takes itself too seriously and gets too solemn, it becomes laughable in a different way. And I think there needs to be some uh, some smirking and winking once in a while, or you know, a chuckle. And I I did do that a lot in in Bestial. And by the time I was done with the book, I was worried that maybe this is just complete horror comedy. Maybe this is like uh, 
reanimator or just, you know something that's that nobody's going to be able to take seriously. Um, but I think it worked, and I, I think you're right. It does diffuse any. Um, I, I didn't mean for the book to be a polemic, and I think that helps it. it helps keep it uh, on the ground and keep it from being that sort of angry diatribe that it could have been. Now, as you are writing this, because one of the things that, that I like about the humor in this is very, very understated. There's not a lot, there's no joke lines or anything. It's just you find yourself in situations that are, you know, somewhat absurd, yet completely <laughs> believable. You <laughs> of the, the fact that you've created them. I mean, it, it strikes me that humor might be a way for you to, to cope not just with the horror, but with, with the religious um, oh, yeah. fear. Um, when I was a kid, my dream, I always wanted to be a writer, but my dream job was to be Rob Petrie and work on the Alan Brady show with, uh, with Buddy Sorrell and Sally Rogers. And, of course, be married to Mary Tyler Moore. <laughs> well, who didn't want to be married to Mary Tyler Moore? <laughs> um, I had hoped to be a comedy writer for a long time. I, I've always um, used comedy as a way of coping, humor as a way of coping with uh, living in that environment and going to those schools. And if you didn't joke about it, you would either take it seriously or your head would explode. You would go insane. Um, and I, I, had to, I had to laugh about it. And it, it, at Rio Lindo, the two years that I spent at Rio Lindo Academy in Healdsburg, a boarding academy, um, I was, my friend Scott and I were, were golden boys. The faculty loved us. They, they, they really did love us. We were both, you know, he was student body president, I was class president. And yet, to keep ourselves sane, we were busy pulling off things that they never suspected us of for one second. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, there was a, 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 a chapel at, on the campus that had these enormous speakers up in the front, two enormous speakers. And there was a speech class. They called it the speech class because they don't use the word drama because drama is frowned upon. But it was essentially a drama class. And they had a loft behind one of the speakers in the, in the uh, chapel where the speech class kept its costumes. And uh, my friends Brian and Scott and I went up there and we bought a time, little timer and a, uh, we had a cassette tape uh, in a player and we hooked it up to the speaker and set the time for halfway through the Friday night Vespers service. Friday night being the Sabbath. And um, on Friday night, for some reason, in the chapel, we were not allowed to sit together, boys and girls. The boys had to sit on the, in the left column, the girls on the right. The, the rest of the time we could sit together, but Friday night, for some reason, they didn't want us smelling each other's pheromones. And um, halfway through this really boring slideshow that was put on by some missionaries who'd gone somewhere to spread the word, loud, pounding rock and roll music blasted over those gigantic speakers and filled the chapel. The walls rattled. Some of the students, especially on the girls' side, got up and ran screaming from the chapel, screaming, demons, demons. <laughs> they really thought the place had been possessed. Uh, I remember the janitor going around unplugging everything he could find, just trying to, desperately trying to shut this thing down. It played for a while before they found out where, where the source was. Now I've got to ask, what, what song, what, what band do you remember? You know, um, 
I was trying to remember that. Um, it wasn't what you and I would consider hard rock today. I, it, it, was, it was more of a pop tune, but it had a big, loud beat, and it was very loud. Uh, I mean, back in those days, the people I hung out with considered Rod Stewart to be heavy metal. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and um, uh, I, I don't remember the song. I really don't. But uh, they never found out that we were behind it. Never. Wow. Until oh, cool. years and years later, the principal's daughter showed up at a reunion. I wasn't attending the reunion, but uh, she asked my friend Brian, who was involved with this, um, do you know, you know, Dad really wants to know who did this. He's, he's, it's, it was still bothering him decades later. <laughs> and he told her, and she was shocked because we just weren't the ones that they expected. Um, and all of this is going into a book called Dismissed from the Front and Center, <laughs> which yeah. is almost finished. It, well, you told us about the upcoming sequel to Abestial. Yeah. Um, tell us about this, this new book. Um, uh, d- dismissed? Yeah, oh, this is, something- this is something I've been working on for a few years, and I, I haven't been able to focus all my attention on it for a long enough period to, to actually finish it. But uh, it covers my two years at Real Indo Academy, and it's, it's a novel. It's fictional, but... Um, 90% of the things in the book actually happened. It's, it's fictional only in that all the names have been changed and, <laughs> and uh, I'm not going to get sued by anybody. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a comedy. It's not a horror novel. It's a comedy. Said in a Seventh-day Adventist uh, college. Boarding academy, oh. yeah. It's, it was my last two years of high school. Um, and the, the thing that... that and I decided I was going to write this book on the day of my graduation because our graduation turned into a riot. The junior class was traditionally at Rio Lindo would line the center aisle as the graduates marched out of the gymnasium. But that year, the principal, uh, James Nash, told me that he didn't want us to do that anymore because we had a habit of the seniors or the graduates marching out had a habit of touching the junior class and hugging and kissing and it offended some of the older constituents. We can't have that PDA, public display of affection, that was a no-no. And it had been a tradition up till that year, our year, and we weren't gonna sit still for it. So I got together with the junior class president and we plotted and decided that when, as I led the class off the gymnasium to, after we'd gotten our diplomas, I would stop on the steps he would stand and they would line the center aisle anyway and I would hold up the class until they were in that center aisle and then we would march out. But somehow the faculty got word of it and when the second I stopped and the juniors stood, the faculty's tr- faculty members tried to physically prevent the juniors from lining that center aisle. And the juniors didn't sit still for it and fights broke out. And the parents, who didn't know what was going on, got really angry, and they started... My dad hit my science teacher over the head with a cane. Really? Yeah. Um, chairs were thrown. The place was a mess. And I was on the, the steps leading down from the gymnasium stage, and I had, the best seat. I had the best seat in the house. I was watching this. We had no idea it would turn into this sort of thing. And I thought to myself, I'm going to write a book about this someday. <laughs> And so I, now I am. <laughs> Ray, in a number of your books, your characters encounter people who are not people. 
Yes, and when they do, um, after they've encountered a vampire or a werewolf or a ghost for the first time, in, in uh, a few of my books, they end up asking themselves the same question, and that is, what else is out there? If, you know, I thought vampires were, were pure fantasy, but they're real, so what else is waiting out there in the dark for me? It makes, uh, I, I, I've always thought that if I were to encounter something like that, it would make me doubt everything. That um, I would not be able to trust what I had been led to believe was reality after encountering a vampire or some supernatural creature. Because if they exist, what else exists? I mean, there could be, you know, there's Bigfoot, aliens with rectal probes, honest politicians, anything, anything could be possible if, if there are vampires. Well, it strikes me, too, that this is um, something that, uh, again, a perception of people that, uh, that that's kind of interesting because um, in your, your religious background might, might play into this, that there are people out there who are not, so far as you're concerned, people. Um, true. There are people out there who uh, we've always been told, uh, growing up in Adventism, always been told you never know when you're dealing with an angel. Um, demon possession is, is brought up a lot. The, there are uh, people who are possessed of demons. Um, and also, everyone is a potential enemy. Your closest friend, when the Sunday law is passed, is going to turn on you. And, uh, and, and turn you into the government because you, you worship on Saturday and you refuse to worship on Sunday. And this is a real fear among Adventists because we're, we're, they're, they're, they remind each other again and again, are, are the people who, love, who we love the most will turn on us. They will be the ones to betray us. And this makes it very, impo- very difficult, maybe impossible for some people, to establish uh, firm trusting relationships with people. And this is, it's, the damage that the cult does is insidious because it's not in the things they say, it's not in the things they teach directly, it's in the subtext, it's in the undercurrent. If anyone you meet could turn on you after the Sunday law is passed, then you can't really trust anyone, and you should not be plan on, on, uh, on continuing any relationships. And it damages the relationships between families and marriages, uh, friendships, everything. Um, but yeah, that does that has had a, a big effect on my my attitude toward uh, who's who, what's what. <laughs> this idea of monsters in our midst too—it's it's a, a a standard horror trope that works really well that evokes fear in all of us. Yeah, um, it, it's. It sort of crossed over with reality in the 50s when there was the communist, uh, the Red Scare, you know, and, and there was a communist under every rug and around every corner. Um, now there's just terrorists. Now, around every, now every we corner. have terrorists. <laughs> now we have terrorists, and we don't know when they're going to hit, and we don't know really who they are necessarily. And, and uh, yeah, there's always... Uh, horror works best when it parallels things in, in, in our lives. I've been speaking with... Ray Garten, he's the author of Seductions, Darklings, Live Girls. His newest book is Bestial, and he was the class president of... Uh, The class of 1981 at Rio Lindo Adventist Academy. Thank you for joining me, Ray. Thank you for having me. 
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.